Welcome back, everyone, to this week's Torah for the Earth audio essay. I'm your host, Charlie Forbes, and this week I will be addressing Parashat Noach, the Parashah of Noah and the story of the flood. The premise of this Parashah is something that I am sure most of us are at least somewhat familiar with, as it is a story that has woven its way into movies, music, and many forms of popular culture over the years. It is a story that is given much thought and attention as Noah is positioned as a significant intermediary in the genealogy of humankind between Adam and Abraham. It is also a notable parasha in that it contains an incident which sparks intense criticism of alcohol consumption, the only instance, in fact, in all of Torah that is discussed in such a way. Noah builds an ark. A great flood inundates the world, and humanity is forced to rebuild. God establishes a covenant with Noah. The Shavah Mitzvot B'nai Noach are given. These are the seven Noahide laws. And an unfortunate event between Noah and his son Ham occurs. The Midrash then tells us that 340 years pass from the time of the flood to the story of the Tower of Babel, during which the whole world spoke one language and united to rebel against God. In response to this betrayal, God then confused the language of the whole earth and scattered them throughout the world. The parashah then concludes with a list of the ten generations from Noah to Abraham. The first verse of parashat Noah is quite curious in that it begins with the statement, quote, These are the offspring of Noah which is then followed by a line which praises him as, quote, a righteous man before the mention of his sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Rashi, who is a medieval French Talmudist known for his commentary on Torah, points out that, quote, according to the Midrash, the Torah means to teach that the primary, quote, offspring of the righteous are their good deeds for the worthwhile things that a person does are their primary legacy. While there is no doubting that Noah was a righteous man, given he was the one chosen to lead those who would be saved from the flood, this interpretation of Rashi alludes to the relativeness of righteousness and its association with action. Let me explain. Following the description of Noah as a, quote, righteous man is the phrase, quote, perfect in his generations. Some sages maintain that Noah was righteous, even in a world that was corrupt and falling apart. It is to his credit that he remained steadfast to his work, and if he had been born in another time amongst the company and influence of other righteous people, he would have climbed to even greater heights. On the other hand, some sages are more critical, suggesting that Noah would have been insignificant if he lived, say, in the time of Abraham. It is this comparison that presses me to wonder, am I doing enough in my own time? Would the ecological actions that I'm taking now stand the test of time within a truly sustainable generation? I do believe that there are indeed steps, however small, that we can take which clearly and obviously help ourselves and the planet. This may include riding a bike instead of driving a car, eating organic food and sourcing that food from local farmers, moderating the films we watch or abstaining from forms of entertainment that contain violence, composting, buying our clothes and other products from ethical supply chains, using renewable energy, 
praying, or even meditating. Any actions that move us in a direction of living a more compassionate and mindful life in relation to the sustainability of the planet are deeds that are to be honored and reinforced. But we must also reach a point in our lives when we examine the paradigms that house those good deeds and question whether they need to be challenged as well. For example, perhaps I'm buying organic food and ethical clothing, but I buy those products online and have them delivered in boxes with plastic packaging. I may put that plastic and those boxes in my recycling bin at the end of the week, but I don't know truly what happens to those materials or if they are even able to be recycled. The point here is that conscious consumerism, while a step in the right direction, is still consumerism, which is a paradigm that must be broken if we are to make a lasting change with respect to our impact on the earth. Even if we are to decentralize the deeds which govern a paradigm through our own actions, at what point must we learn to entirely detach from that variety of living? And this begs the question. While Noah may have been surrounded by extremely wicked people and corrupt behavior, is there anything he changed about the existing paradigms that drove human beings to the edge before the flood? There are many transitions that occurred after the flood, both to the world and to the laws that were to guide human behavior. For starters, God did make a concession that was not in place before the flood, and that was the permission to eat meat. It may seem strange to read about the prohibition against eating a limb torn from a live animal, but when placed within the context of what occurs before the flood, it's entirely necessary. Bezrat Hashem, in future commentaries, I will address what the Torah says about blood, but suffice it to say that the natural order between humans and animals, and humans and humans for that matter, broke down, which is why animals lost their innate fear of human beings. This was restored after the flood, which is not so much about humans being superior to animals, but about humans living by their highest nature, which maintains a particular order to the world and a specific relationship amongst its inhabitants. In Genesis 1, human beings are granted dominion over the earth, but this is before human beings leave Ganadin and alter the modes of their subsistence. Adam and Eve weren't in the garden planting vineyards and eating meat, which perhaps is a point that alludes to the despair Noah feels after leaving the ark. My speculation is that Noah realizes that, although the world has been restored in some sense, the course of action that humans must take to fulfill God's will has also been altered, and Noah is mournful of this change. The Midrash tells us that there is progression and regression in the service of God, and there are two basic approaches to our course of action. The first is to withdraw from society and to focus entirely in undisturbed seclusion on one's own spiritual growth. The second is to become active in the community and to devote oneself, even sacrifice oneself, for the physical and spiritual well-being of others. The Midrash teaches that Noah chose the latter course of action, preferring to focus on the perfection of his own character and to not extend himself for other people. While Noah did ascend the ladder of righteousness for a time, 
he eventually fell from that status to be described as a man of the earth. Taken within the context of the line, quote, Noah, the man of the earth, debased himself and planted a vineyard, man of the earth is meant to relay a negative connotation and suggest a regression in the service of God, a fall, if you will. But I would make the argument that there is much more complexity in this line, which includes a progressive variety of devotion on the part of Noah. I have read bits of Midrash addressing the incident with Ham in Noah's tent after he fell drunk. Some accounts explain that Ham meant to injure Noah in some way so that he couldn't have a fourth child, which would have encroached on the territory that Shem, Ham, and Japheth were due to inherit. When you couple this with the prophecy Noah later gives about the destiny of his sons, I certainly wonder to what extent Noah could foresee the future of the world and whether his descent to becoming a man of the earth was an act of defiance in service of God. Firstly, the definite article is used to describe Noah as the man of the earth, Ish Ha-Adamah, implying that the earth was saved by him and him alone. This we know, but it is more to the point that Noah dedicated himself to working with and cultivating the earth rather than building cities, which is a significant aspect of his character given what would unfold later with the Tower of Babel. Second, the word for earth used here is Adama rather than Aretz. Aretz is used when referring to the top layer of the earth, the three handbreadths of the earth that were wiped clean by the flood. The lesson here is that, perhaps, Noah remained resolute to a moral stance and conviction that was unchanging and that could persist beyond any flood or city built or paradigm shift. Perhaps Noah was after something deeper, something closer to God. It is my belief that Noah, as a righteous man, was somehow absorbing the shame and punishment of the generations to come by suffering on their behalf. This is perhaps the principal paradigm shift that occurs after the flood, a shift that required a change of service to God and a revision of the type of sacrifice needed for the spiritual well-being of others. With that being said, I will leave you with this to ponder. If Noah did indeed absorb the shame and punishment of future generations, then how does that reflect on us in the current ecological crisis who are oftentimes said to have stolen the future of the next generation? How do our actions compare to a truly sustainable society, and how can we become righteous people for the earth and for generations to come? Thank you all for listening. If you found this audio essay at all interesting and want to hear more, I have uploaded a speech I gave last May on the moral parallels between our present day and pre-flood frameworks. It can be found under the Transformational Media tab in the podcast section of the Deep Water Initiative website. Catch you next week. Goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.